I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. John, chapter 13. That's where we're at this morning. We are moving into the upper room this morning in this encounter. Jesus will spend this final evening with his disciples, and the next day will be crucified. So over the coming weeks, we're going to look at what Jesus had to teach his disciples here in the upper room, and there's much for us to learn from that. Let me ask you, if you were offered the chance to go live somewhere in the ancient world, would you take that, take that offer? I mean, give up the luxuries of the modern world and go live sometime in the past. And I'm not meaning like a vacation, like a 10-day trip. You say, oh yeah, that'd be wonderful time travel for a little bit and then come back to the present day. I'm, I'm meaning you go, you leave, and you live there. How many of you would take that? So uh, what I'm talking about is a time before Star Wars in the Dark Ages. You know, when I think about it, uh, my answer to that offer would be no, absolutely not. Uh, there's primarily two reasons for that. Uh, the Star Wars one's a little true, but joking. Um, but one of them is internet. I don't think I'd do well going to a time without internet. I love it too much. The second one would be air conditioning. Now, this past week, you could do without air conditioning. I get it. Uh, I could not go the whole year without air conditioning. That would not be fun. I'm talking about a time where there's no phones, no TV, no internet. I'm talking about a time where if a loved one or family member moves away, you're probably not seeing them again. And the communication via letters is going to take months. I'm talking about a time where there's not the modern medicine of today's world. Uh, and if you got sick, there probably was nothing you're going to be able to do about it. That's the time I'm talking about. How many of you would trade the luxuries of the modern world? You know, we, we tend to complain about it, but we've actually got it pretty good. And go live sometime in the past. I have no doubt that most, if not all of us, would loathe that kind of trade. And yet that is nothing in comparison to the Son of God stepping down from his throne on high in heaven and coming to live among us as a human being. To trade his glories and his riches and his throne and come walk among us as a human being on this planet. We love a good rags-to-riches story, but the gospel is, in a sense, a riches-to-rags story where the king of all glory stepped down from his throne to live among us and to take the role of a servant. Not only did he come and live on earth, he came to serve. The Bible tells us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And there are few places in the Bible where that is seen more clearly than in our text this morning. And so let's read this, John chapter 13, beginning in verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. 
for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word given to us. We pray that you would write the truth of this text upon each of our hearts, that you would cause us to see your son Jesus high and lifted up, that we would rejoice in and marvel in your love shown to us in Christ, that we would see the way that our Lord Jesus served us, used his greatness, used his authority to serve and to rescue and redeem us, to wash us of our sin. I pray that you would cause us to see this and that in turn we would be people who serve others. I think this morning of so many in our church and in our community who do exactly this, and I think last night many of us were able to gather at the Ashland Special Needs Talent Show, and I think of the Ashland Special Needs Ministry and Christina Tevan and the leadership there and the way that they love dear people made in your image, care for families in our community. I think of today being Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And we think of the Ashland Pregnancy Care Center and Melanie Miller and her whole team there who, who stand for the unborn children and their families. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which they serve other people, serve those who might be looked down upon or vulnerable and remind us of how to love other people as you have loved us. May you make us people who love and serve because we remember how we have been loved and served by our Lord Jesus. May you do that this morning by your word, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 13 is a stunning picture of Jesus kneeling down and washing his disciples' feet. Here, let me give the context of where we're at. This is Thursday of Passion Week. So we saw a few weeks ago Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry upon the donkey. He's celebrated as the king. And here we are Thursday of that week, Sunday to Thursday. And what happens is that very night he'll be arrested and put on trial, and before the, the, the Friday is done, he'll be laid in a tomb and dead. That's where we're at in the story. Jesus knew all this was coming. In fact, we're told at the beginning, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And then we read what I think is a summary statement, not just of this text, but really the remainder of John's gospel. Here's what it is. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to his Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The main point of this text is the love of Jesus shown toward his people. That is demonstrated in this tangible picture played out with foot washing. But the main point this morning is the love of Jesus on display. Jesus here is spending the evening with his disciples. It's a quiet meal with his 12 disciples in the upper room right before Jesus is going to be killed. He's going to teach them many things, and he's going to teach them about his love for them. And he's going to teach them about the triune God and his purposes in and through them. But 
we also know what the dinner conversation was that night. Now, sometimes we can paint an overly rosy picture of the upper room on that evening, and we think, wow, that must have been amazing. Jesus is teaching about all these wonderful things, and it must have been this really sweet time, and everything was, you know, oh, it was wonderful. Well, Luke tells us what the dinnertime conversation was at that meal, and here's what Luke says. A dispute also arose among them, among the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So they ate this Passover meal together. Jesus gave the bread and the cup. And what happens in response to that? The disciples start debating who among us gets to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. That was the dinnertime conversation at the Last Supper. And many have noted, and I like to imagine this being the case. We don't know for sure, but many have suggested that it was at that point in the meal where Jesus stood up from the table, removed his outer garments, took up a towel, knelt down before his disciples, and began to wash their feet. As if to tell his disciples, you want to know what true greatness looks like? I'll show you. The disciples are arguing who gets to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, and the greatest among them at the table stands up, then kneels down and washes their feet to serve them. Jesus is teaching his disciples that the true greatness is through service and love. Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples, and he is showing them a picture of what true service looks like and true greatness looks like. This task of foot washing was reserved for the lowliest among people, a task reserved for the servants of the household. It would have seemed crazy for anyone sitting around that table to get up and do it. We don't know why, but no one had done that upon them entering into the room yet. Their feet would be filthy. What happened in their day, you'd walk on dirt roads and maybe you had some sandals or maybe it was bare feet. And so, of course, the dirt would accumulate upon the feet and it would get filthy. So when you entered into a house, you would have someone wash your feet so that you could go forth and it was all clean. Um, Maybe a a, a bit of a comparison is, uh, you know, this past week it was rather cold. We got some snow. And uh, when you're driving then, there's a bunch of salt on the road. So I drive a black car and one day I walked out and I'm like, my car is now white uh, and it's covered in salt. Um, now, here's where the analogy breaks down, because I, just, I reached the point where I'm like, why bother washing it if it's just going to get dirty again this winter? So I wait. But that would have been different for them. They, they wash their feet upon arriving every time in the house. So you can, uh, upon their travels, they would accumulate some filth upon their feet, and someone would have to wash it. And no one has done that yet. No one humbled themselves to that point until Jesus does it. I will return to the opening verses in, the, in just a bit because the main point, as I've mentioned, is about love. But we see that love played out through this demonstration of foot washing. And we see three things that it teaches us about what we need because Jesus is doing this as a parable to teach us of some deep spiritual realities of what we need in our lives. And the first need that he points out for us is the need for complete forgiveness. We need complete forgiveness of our sins. So look with me at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. It tells us Jesus knew he had all authority. He knew where he was going, and that's what drove him to serve. And then it says, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus working his way around the the, the group of disciples and he comes to Peter and Peter offers what might seem initially like an admirable objection on the surface. 
Because here is what Peter is saying. Essentially, if we could paraphrase his, what he's saying, Lord, you are so great that this act is completely beneath you. You shouldn't wash my feet. I should be washing your feet, Lord. This is beneath you. How many of us approach Jesus much the same way? Thinking, Jesus, no, no, no. This is too low for you, too beneath you. I should be the one serving you. You're not serving me. How many of us are maybe hesitant to bring requests to him, thinking, Jesus, this is too little for you to bother with. I'll handle this one myself. Jesus, you don't serve me. I'm the one serving you. We don't always take take being served by other people that well. We don't really like being served. We kind of get a little awkward about it. And so we come to Jesus with much the same objection as Peter. Lord, you're too great to bother with this. You're too great to handle this in my life. Leave this one to me. Let me serve you. Jesus comes to Peter with saying, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. Jesus is saying to Peter, listen, Peter, you need this washing. And it's not a literal physical foot washing Jesus has in mind. There's a deeper cleansing. Peter gets infused by it, but there's a deeper cleansing that Jesus has in mind. He speaks of a washing or a cleansing from sin. And without this cleansing, Jesus says, a person has no share with him. Meaning, church, that the only way to share in Christ, the only way to share in the eternal life that he promises is through being washed by our Savior. Our sins are dark. We are tainted and stained by sin. We need to be cleansed. All of us are sinners and rebels against the holy God. And we need more than just to rinse our hands and be done with it. We need to be completely cleansed, completely bathed. Every single part of us is tainted and stained by sin, which means every single part of us is in desperate need of cleansing by Jesus. Jesus means cleansing, but he doesn't mean by water. He doesn't mean this literal foot washing. He means cleansing by his blood. We are washed, bathed, cleansed in the blood of Christ that was shed for us on the cross. See, John told us that Jesus' hour is drawing near. And even in the opening verses, we saw Jesus knew his hour had come. The hour he speaks of is the hour of his death, the hour of his crucifixion, where his blood will be shed to wash sinners clean. This is the reason he came, to shed his blood for us and to cleanse those who are in filth and in sin. And notice who it is that does the washing. Jesus says to Peter, if I do not wash you, what he does not say to Peter is, unless you wash yourself, Peter, unless you clean yourself up, Peter, you'll have no share with me. He says, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. See, our natural instinct is to think of faith the other way around, is to think that if there is a God, I must get myself cleaned up before I come to him. I need to wash myself, make myself presentable, do my best to be a good person, to get my life cleaned up a little bit. I can't go to church until I get my life fixed. I can't come to God until I'm a little more clean. Jesus does not tell Peter, unless you wash yourself, he says, unless I wash you. The reason this is so foreign to us is because we don't think of this in any other area of life. If you're going to meet someone with a particular power or influence, you're probably going to get a little dressed up. If you were to get an invitation to meet with the president in the Oval Office, I doubt you would go in uh, looking like you just did some yard work or working out or whatever. You'd probably clean up, take a, take a bath, a shower, dress up fancy. I'd like, get to go to the Oval Office. And so everyone we meet in life with some sort of significance and power, we think, i got to clean myself up to impress them. And then we come to Jesus, and Jesus does not say, all right, let's see what you got. He says, unless you come to me, unless I wash you, you'll have no part with me. 
Friend, maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you look at your life and you see your sin, you see the stain, you see the filth. You're wondering why you're even here. You've been trying to get your life turned around, get your life cleaned up. You've been trying to be a better person and think maybe if I just get my life together, then I can turn to Jesus. But you need to hear the words of the Savior this morning saying to you, not unless you clean yourself up, you'll have a part in me. He says, unless I wash you. Jesus is the one who does the washing. And so he invites all to come to him, those who are stained in their sin and the filth of their life, those who see the mess and the shame and don't figure out how to get out of it, those who know I'm not, my life is not together, it's falling apart, those who know I'm a sinner and I'm ashamed over it. Jesus says, come to me and I'll cleanse you. That's the hope of the gospel. It's not that we clean ourselves up. It's that Jesus cleans us by his blood. So don't delay coming to Jesus just because you're dirty or just because your life is falling apart. Come to Jesus and he says, I will cleanse you from your sin. You might see the darkness in your own heart and you might say, I gotta first try to brighten this up a little bit, but Jesus is the light of the world who drives out the darkness. Or you might look at your heart and you see the sin and the filth and you say, you know what? I've gotta clean my life up a little bit before I share in Christ. And Jesus says, come to me and I will wash you white as snow with my blood. It's to come to him by faith, to be cleansed. The only way to this kind of eternal life is to come to him by faith, to reach the end of yourself, to humble yourself before him and say, Lord, I cannot do it. You must. I am filthy in my sin. You, Lord, must make me clean. It's not through merit. If anyone had a case to claim on merit, you might think it's Peter. Peter was the unofficial leader of the 12 disciples, This was a man who had gotten so much right publicly and who had seen so many wonderful miracles firsthand. In fact, we could say that you can make a good case that there was no human being on the planet outside of Christ who saw more of the glory of Jesus while he walked on the planet than Peter did. Peter was the one who saw him transfigured on the mountain, and Peter is the one who stepped out of the boat and began walking on water after the Lord. This is Peter. And what does Jesus say to him? If I don't wash you, Peter, you have no part in me. Peter needs this cleansing just as much as anyone else. This is not on the basis of merit or what we have done or what we know or how much church experience you've had or how much you've tried to be a good person. This is only on the basis of Jesus washing us. And so we come to him by faith saying, Lord, make me clean. That's how we share in him. And what it means to share in him is to have eternal life. And so the question before we move any further for you to consider, friend, is have you been washed by the blood of Christ? Have you knelt before him to ask for forgiveness of your sins and trusted in his work for your salvation? You know, a friend of mine here at the church has has observed that often we focus on the humility of Christ in this passage, understandably so, but we also must see that Peter humbles himself to say, Lord, then wash me. Wash me. And he's a little impulsive. He doesn't exactly understand what's going on. But nonetheless, that impulse is a right one. Have you come to Christ and said, Lord, then wash me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm filthy. And I know I need cleansed. Wash me. If you're here and you're not a believer, that is the call on you this morning. From God's word, it is to humble yourself before this humble servant Savior and let him wash you of your sin. The song asks it well. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? And unless you are washed by Christ, you have no part in him. And so the ever impulsive Peter jumps in. We just alluded to it. Verse nine, 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Basically, well, then wash all of me, Jesus. If that's the case, let's just go all the way. Well, I stopped at the feet. But Jesus is going to teach him that not only do we need complete forgiveness of our sins, but those who have been forgiven of their sins need daily confession as we come to him for his grace. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. That final statement, Jesus alludes to Judas. We read earlier in the text that Judas, uh, the devil had already entered into Judas. Judas had already committed to betraying Jesus. We already know what Judas's intentions were. And we might expect if you and I were in that situation on that last night of Jesus' life, and we knew Judas is going to betray me by the end of the night, we would probably be overly preoccupied with Judas, thinking, what's he going to do, and, and, and upset that he's even there. Jesus, though, is not too preoccupied with Judas. He's focused on the rest of the 11 and teaching them about his love. But we know here that Jesus says, not all of you are clean. He washed Judas's feet, and yet Judas is not clean. He must then be speaking of a deeper cleansing than a literal foot washing here. And what happens in John's gospel is people often confuse. Jesus does some physical act or says some physical thing and means a spiritual reality behind it, and they get confused. So, for example, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And his question is, how do I crawl back into my mother's womb? Or here, I must wash you. And Peter thinks it's a physical bath. The washing Jesus is referring to, we just saw, is about salvation, which means then that this foot washing is about our sanctification, which means our continued growth in godliness as Christians. So if the washing is about salvation, the foot washing here is about sanctification. Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. So if what we've just seen, bathing or this washing is the forgiveness of sins, then here's the point. Once you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, you are completely clean. Church, you need to know that. When you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, you are completely clean. And when God looks at you, brother and sisters, he does not see your sin and your stain and your filth. He sees the pure and perfect spotless righteousness of Christ. You are completely clean. And you stand before the throne in righteousness, not in filth. It's unchanging no matter the season. Some of you know what it's like to keep praying over and over again, hoping one of them sticks. But listen, friends, when you have been forgiven by Christ and washed by him, you are completely clean at that moment. Jesus says he is completely clean, doesn't need another bath. But he does say there's still some feet that need washed. And what he means by that is the daily cleansing that comes through confession. Let's imagine that morning the disciples got up and they bathed and showered and got dressed up. They'd be clean. By the time they got to their dinner location, their feet would have been dirty. The rest of them didn't need a bath, but they just needed to rinse off their feet and they would be good. That is a parable for the Christian life. If we have been washed by Christ, we are completely clean. But what happens is as we walk, travel in a sinful world, the allures of sin that are around us and within us, we recognize that our feet still get dirty and we come to Christ daily for a confession of that. And this daily confession is for the sake of fellowship, not forgiveness. We have already been forgiven of our sin. That is an unchanging and unchanged reality at the cross, that when you come to Christ and are washed by him, you are completely clean. This is not for the sake of forgiveness. This is for the sake of fellowship. The daily sin that we walk in hinders our walk with Jesus and our intimacy with him. 
And so we come to him and we ask him for his forgiveness to be applied in this situation, for our sin to be defeated and for the strength to keep walking in righteousness. We come desiring to know Christ in deeper and sweeter ways. And so we come and confess. And friend, you do not need a priest or a saint or anyone else for this confession. You have direct access to Jesus Christ, your Lord. And you bring your sin before him and you confess, Lord, here's my sin. Thank you for your forgiveness. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to know you in sweeter ways. And when we experience the kind of love that forgives us of this sin and that welcomes us in, we realize how freeing it is to live this kind of way. And then we see that Jesus calls us to show this same kind of love and grace toward others. That Jesus then calls us to live as he lived, to follow his example in these things. And so he then points us to a third reality, that we need humble service. Not only do we need complete forgiveness of our sins, and not only do we need the daily confession as we continue to sin as we walk this Christian life, but we need humble service as we follow our Savior in his example and how he has loved and served us. Jesus is going to say that it is impossible, it is impossible to truly come to him and not be changed by him. You cannot come to Jesus and be left unchanged. And so we become like him. Imperfectly now, yes, but growing in Christ-likeness. And that's what Jesus calls his followers to do. He brings it home by telling his disciples, okay, then here's how you live in response to this. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Remember, the disciples have just been arguing who is the greatest among us. And Jesus, it says, if he sits down and says, okay, do you get the point now, friends? Do you understand what I have done for you? The greatest among you has just served you. Jesus is teaching them about what true greatness looks like. They're arguing about who gets to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you want to be the greatest? Serve. Serve one another as I have served you. He makes this clear. He continues, you call me teacher and Lord, for you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. He tells his followers, they, as he has washed their feet, they likewise ought to wash one another's feet. And there are some traditions that take this as a specific command to follow as foot washing. Others view it as a general principle that he's establishing about serving. And very faithful Christians will hold to both of those views. Very faithful Christians who hold a high view of God's word will hold to both of those views. This is a thing we must not break fellowship over, and yet I think it's both of those things. We at Grace, in our tradition, celebrate foot washing periodically throughout the year because we want to do as Christ did for us and remember his work in that way. When we have our threefold communion service, we not only partake of the bread and the cup, not only, but we also share a meal together and we wash one another's feet, just like Jesus has done for us. And if you've never been to one of those services with us, we're doing one again on Good Friday, and, uh, which is gonna be here before you know it. I would love to have you join us for that. It's always a sweet time of remembering what Christ has done for us. But even though we observe foot washing, it's also true that Jesus is making a larger point than just washing feet. There's a deeper spiritual reality that is going on here because he continues and he says this in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, Jesus makes a bigger point, a broader point than just foot washing. He makes the point that a servant is not greater than his master. 
that those who follow Jesus must not think themselves greater than Jesus. So if this is not too low or too humble for Christ, then it is not too low or too humble for Christians. If there is a way Jesus was willing to serve, then it must also be a way that Christians are willing to serve. Because a servant is not greater than the master. Church, you need to see the picture of your Savior and your Lord serving you. You need to see that he came to serve you, to lay aside the rights and the privileges of deity, to walk among us as a human being. He, he came not to flaunt, or flaunt his crown, but to trade it for one that was made of thorns instead. He came not to be exalted upon his glorious throne. He came to be exalted, humiliated upon a shameful cross. And you need to see that what drove him to all of this was love for you to serve you, to take aside his outer garments and to wrap himself in a towel with the very drops of blood that fell from his body to wash you and cleanse you from your sin. That is why he came. We think of the great Christ hymn in the book of Philippians. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Why? For you. Because he loves you. And because he came for his own, that his own might know him and know his love forever and ever and ever and ever. To be washed by his blood. You need to see your Savior stooping down to serve you. And marvel at this kind of love and this kind of grace. And once we see that, once we see our Savior who loves us and serves us like that, then it is impossible for any Christian to refuse to follow him in his example. And how pertinent is it for us? Because we are a lot like the disciples. You and I, especially myself, you know, I see it in my heart all the time. We are much like the disciples. We are prone to strive for our own greatness and seek our own glory. How much do we want our own names to be exalted, our own significance, reputation, influence, and glory to be celebrated? We want greatness like the disciples want greatness. And Jesus confronts that reality. He says, first of all, that's not what should drive you. But second of all, if you have influence, whatever you have, use it to serve. Servant leadership is nothing new. It's the way of Christ. You want to be great, Jesus says? Serve. The greatest among us should be the greatest servants among us. All of us in this room have some level of influence over other people. Some of you have great influence over many people. Some of you have smaller influence over few people. But all of us have influence on some people. Parents with your children. Or bosses with employees. Or church leaders in the congregation. Or friends and family. Whoever it might be. All of us have some sort of influence in other people's lives. And Jesus says, okay, whatever greatness, whatever influence you have, use that to serve. To consider others ahead of yourself. To lay yourself down and serve them and love them. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. John Piper puts it like this. He says, pastors, go low. Elders, go low. Heads of households, go low. Small group leaders, go low. Presidents of companies and owners and supervisors and managers, go low. Mom and dad, go low. Big brothers and sisters, go low. So on and so forth. Here's the point. Go low. Humble yourself before other people and say, I'm going to use whatever the Lord has given to me, whatever he has entrusted to me, whatever influence and power and significance and authority he has given to me, whatever greatness that I have, I'm going to use it to go low and serve others. That's the way of Christ. So where is it this week that you can serve other people? How is it this week that you could humble yourself and place others ahead of yourself? 
to be more concerned with their well-being than your own, to be more concerned with what they need than what you need, to be less concerned with what people think about you and more concerned about how can I love and serve other people? How can I humble myself? It's the way of Christ. And Jesus says, listen, the servant's not greater than the master. We should not think that we are greater than he is. And the fact of the matter is that a person who refuses to serve others and who lives only for their own glory says by their actions that they think they are greater and more important than Jesus is. He calls us to serve as he has served us, to love as he has loved us. And if you look at this and say, okay, that kind of humility, that is not true in my life. I wish I was more humble, but I'm not. I wish that was the response of my heart, but it's not. Here is not the takeaway. The takeaway is not try harder to be more humble. It's probably not going to work that well. The takeaway is this, look at Christ. The more we focus on his service and his love and his humility for us, the more we cannot help but be transformed into his likeness. We become like what we behold. We are made like what we worship. And the more you look at Jesus, the more you sit in this text and look at the Savior who loves you and serves you, the more we'll be transformed to be like him. You want to become more humble? Look at Jesus who humbled himself for you. You want to serve others more? Look at Jesus, who served you through his death. You want to love other people? Look at Jesus, who loved you beyond what you could ever imagine. Which means then that the real takeaway of this passage, as I alluded to earlier, is about the love of Christ. See, this passage is not primarily about foot washing. It is not primarily about go and do likewise. It is not primarily even about humility and service. It is about all those things. We've just learned from all of those things. But the main point of this passage and this section of John's gospel is about the love of Christ. And it gives us a tangible picture of what that looks like. Again, return to verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Church, I want to close by reminding you of what this kind of love looks like. To be loved to the end by Jesus as he loved his own. Those who were given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world, those for whom Christ died, his church, his people, he loved them to the end. What does this mean? First, it means that he loves you to the end of his life. The text tells us Jesus knew his hour had come for him to depart. So he loved them to the end. Jesus did not shy away from the cross. He did not back out of it at the last second. It was not as if he was walking on the road to the cross and he turned and ran the other way. He did not back out of it. He loved you to the end of his life. There was a steadfastness about his love even amidst his greatest trial. You know, you can learn a lot about someone's love by looking at them sticking around for the long term and them sticking around when the going gets tough. We all long for that kind of love, and yet we all know people who have said they loved us, and then when, they, when we were in great need, they were not there. When you messed up and your sin found you out, or when you were hurt and wronged and it led to that public embarrassment, or when the rumors began swirling and your reputation was in question, or when you lost your money and you had less to offer to them, we all know people whose love only goes so far, but not Jesus. He loved them to the end, to the end of his life, all the way to the cross, even through unimaginable suffering. In fact, it says Jesus knew his hour had come, so what did he do? He loved them to the end. 
It doesn't say, it wasn't just that he loved them in spite of what was happening. There was a very real sense in which we could say that what was happening to him, his trial, his crucifixion, was what spurred him on to love all the more. Far from being a distraction from his love, his trials inclined his heart all the more toward us. He loved you to the end of his life. He did not waver. He did not back down. He loved you, Christian, to the end. It means the second thing. It means that he loves you to the end of time. His love does not end at death. You know the traditional marriage vows? Till death do us part. And what it's saying is, I will love you until the day I die. And that is a beautiful thing. But only Jesus can look at us and say, I will not only love you until the day you die, I will keep loving you forever. I will love you in and through death forever. He loves us to the end, meaning he will love us to the end of time. There will never come a day where Jesus will stop loving you, dear Christian. You will never reach a point where you find the expiration date of the love of God towards you. All who belong to him, all who are loved by him will be loved by him forever. Everything else that's good in life has some sort of ending point, and it does not last. So the best of vacations, they come to an end. A week where you have school only one day still comes to an end. The best of seasons of life come to a close. The kids grow up, they move out of the house. They get married, move away, everything changes. A new boss comes in and makes the dream job that you had all the more stressful now. Your perfect health all of a sudden turns into sickness that plagues you. There's nothing else like this. There's nothing lasting. There's nothing else like the love of Jesus who will love you to the end. Only Jesus can look at you and say, my love will never fail you. My love will never change towards you. My love remains the same all the way to the end, through death to everlasting life. Only Jesus can look at us like that. Third, it means Jesus loves you to the deepest point of forgiveness. He loves you to the very deepest point of forgiveness. Uh, Think about the disciples on this night. It says, Jesus loved his own, his disciples. These people are those who that very night are going to leave him and desert him in his greatest trial. And Jesus knows all of that's about to happen. He not only knew Judas was going to betray him, he also knew his disciples, those who were true believers in him, would flee. Peter says, I will never leave you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times before the night's even done. Jesus knew they were going to scatter. He knew all of their sin. He knew all of their belief. And he knew how they still did not get what he was teaching them. And he loves them in spite of their sin. In fact, that's why he came, to cleanse us from our sin. And it means that there is not a single sin that you could ever commit that goes deeper than his love. There is nothing that you have done, could do, or will do that would ever be greater than his love for you. One pastor said it well. He said, if your sin is as high as the highest mountain on the earth, God's love is like Noah's flood, which covered all of them. God's love for you is greater than any of your sin. There is no sin that will cause him to change his mind. There is nothing stronger than the love of Christ. He died for your sin. He died for you. He loves you to the end, to the deepest point of forgiveness. There's a fourth implication. It means he loves you to the uttermost, to completion, to perfection. That's really the way that this could be translated when it says he loves them to the end. It could be rendered best to, be, to the uttermost, to perfection, meaning he loves you in fullness to completion. There is no greater love that could ever be possible than the love of Christ towards you. We could say Jesus loves you in the greatest way possible. It is impossible for him to improve on his love toward you. Think about what that means. 
How many times are you tempted to think when you pray and your prayer is not answered like you would think? That perhaps if God had answered your prayer differently, he would love you more. It would be more loving if he did this. But what this is telling you is he loves you to the uttermost, to completion, to perfection, and it is impossible for anyone or anything to improve upon his love. He could never love you more than he does because his love for you is perfect and complete and full. Spurgeon said it like this. He could not love them any better. That was impossible. He could not love them any more wisely. That would be out of the question. He could not love them any more intensely. That's not supposable. Whatever the perfection of love may be, that is what Jesus Christ bestows upon his people. There is no such love in all the world as the love of Christ toward his people. If you were to gather up all the loves that ever were, of men and women, of mothers and children, of friends and friends, and heap up all these loves, the love of Jesus is of superior quality to all of them. For none of those loves are absolutely perfect, but Jesus Christ loves us to perfection. So there's a final implication of this, a fifth implication. It means that Jesus loves you more completely than anyone else. Jesus loves you more completely than anyone else. He is the one who loves you just like this. He is the one who loves you to the end of his life, to the end of time, to the deepest parts of your sin, and to the uttermost. Jesus and only Jesus loves you like this. All human loves, as wonderful as they are, will pale in comparison to this. Spurgeon is right. You can heap up all the other loves of this world and combine them together, and you still will not match the love of Jesus Christ toward you and toward his people. This world is full of lesser loves. Some of them are good and we should praise God for them. Others of them are bad and we should run away from them. But all of them are lesser. Maybe you find yourself loved well and deeply by another human being. Praise God for that, but let that love drive you all the more to the far superior love of Jesus for you. And maybe you're here and you wish someone would love you like this. You cling to God and know someone does. Jesus Christ loves you completely beyond what you could ever imagine. He loves you to the end, to completion, to perfection. There is no other love like this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every love the best. Tis an ocean vast of blessing. Tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. Church, do you see the way your Savior loves you? to the end. His love for you will never fail. His love for you will never fade. His love for you remains perfect yesterday, today, and forevermore. His love for you will follow you around for all of your days. That is how he loves you. And if he loves us like that, how then can we not be like him and love others and serve others as he has loved and served us? Father, we thank you for your love shown to us through Jesus Christ, your son. Pray that you would make us more like him, transform us into his image. Pray that we would sit in and soak in your love for us. That we would remember your grace, remember your kindness, remember your love, remember your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that in turn we would be people who serve, who love, in humility, following in the footsteps of our Savior who came not to be served, but to serve. We thank you for his life. He gave himself as a ransom for us that we might live. We thank you for your love, your grace, your forgiveness, and pray that we would sit in that, rejoice in that, and know you as we walk in fellowship with you. We love you. We ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.